ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Don Guerra. Naturalists anticipate a chronic wasting disease that affects deer, elk, and moose will soon migrate to Indiana. The chronic wasting disease, or CWD, was first confirmed in the 1970s in Colorado. Back then, wildlife officials thought it would take more than 100 years to find its way east. They were confident that the Mississippi River would serve as a natural border. In 2002, CWD was found in Wisconsin wildlife, and since then, the disease has made its way to 25 states, most recently into Mississippi and Tennessee, and two Canadian provinces. CWD continues to spread, and confirmed cases are now within miles of the Alabama state line, close to Idaho and approaching Indiana. Infected animals grow very thin and confused. The animals progress through stages similar to cattle infected with mad cow disease, but there is a difference between the two diseases. Mad cow can transfer to humans, but there is no known case of chronic wasting disease infecting humans. The disease has no known cure. Last year was the fourth warmest for the planet since 1880. This finding makes the last five years the five hottest years in over two and a half million years since before the great ice age of the Pleistocene. According to Goddard Space Studies director Gavin Schmidt, 2018 is, quote, yet again an extremely warm year on top of a long-term global warming trend, unquote. The average temperature of the globe in 2018 was 100 degrees Celsius or 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit higher than the average temperature end of the 19th century. The Goddard Space Studies report follows a year marked by wildfires, which scorched more than one and a half million acres in California and an extended drought across much of Europe. Last year also brought news that glaciers in the North and South Poles and on Greenland are melting at far faster rates than previously expected. Of the top 20 hottest years on record, the agency said, Eighteen of them have been since 2001. Since global carbon dioxide emissions increase virtually every year, we can expect higher temperatures for the foreseeable future. World government and corporate leaders met in Davos, Switzerland, the week of January 21st, for the World Economic Forum annual meeting. Environment and natural resource security is one of the forum's main initiatives. Climate change was named as the number one threat to the world economy for the fourth year in a row. Former U.S. Vice President Al Gore, a documentary film producer and the founder of the Climate Reality Project, discussed climate change solutions along with leaders from Japan, Netherlands, New Zealand, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, and distinguished U.K. journalist Sir David Attenborough. Also at Davos, 
16-year-old Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg challenged World Economic Forum members to put the well-being of the Earth and its inhabitants ahead of global profits. Thunberg also delivered her message to members of the UN Climate Conference last November. The Forum's alliance of CEO climate leaders, representing 50 top global corporations, reported that they have decreased their collective emissions by 9% since 2016. They pledged to continue reducing emissions, investing in low- and no-carbon businesses, and pushing for global carbon pricing mechanisms that reflect a, quote, meaningful price, unquote, for carbon. Many observers criticized the meeting for the less-than-environmentally-friendly accomplishments. It was widely reported that World Economic Forum members traveled to and from Davos in 1,500 private jets. The forum puts the number of private checks closer to 700, representing a 14% decrease from 2018 numbers. Because its annual meeting is a certified sustainable event, the forum is required to offset the carbon emissions for all meeting-related transportation, private jet or otherwise. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Todd Wicks. Support for EcoReport comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976. Offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd near College Mall, West 6th near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. And now, another episode of The Secret Life of Fungi. The former Russian space station Mir reportedly smelled like rotten apples, and globs of mold floated in the electrical panels. For over a decade before the station was decommissioned, fungi flourished on the Mir, demonstrating its resilience in space. In fact, the fungi kingdom has been in space since the beginning. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower, and I'll explore the past, present, and future of mushrooms in space in this segment of The Secret Life of Fungi. Cosmonauts and their international colleagues using the Low Orbit Research Lab were plagued with fungi that came into the Mir space station naturally on the space explorer's skin. The fungi had no hostile intent. It was simply doing its organic recycler job, eating dead skin as the cosmonauts naturally shed it. On Earth, with gravity's slowing spore distribution, this is the kind of tiny microbe that human hosts would never notice. But over time, in the confines of the space station, a whole variety of dead skin decomposers started to etch into unlikely surfaces all over the mirror, even on the quartz glass of fairy viewports. The fungi spread out, networking with its mycelium, naturally seeking connection. In many ways, fungi are particularly resilient space travelers, even outside human transport. Spores can withstand harsh conditions like outer space, remaining dormant for extremely long periods of time. Extreme cold? No problem. Cosmic radiation? Fungi can handle it. Astrobiologists have long theorized about the nature of life throughout our galaxy, speculating that pre-nucleic acids, in other words, the building blocks of life, spring naturally from the cosmos as matter organizes. 
These building blocks, and even fully formed spore, travel on comets or on interstellar plasmic winds. This interstellar migration, known as panspermia, isn't just the stuff of science fiction. Life, especially dormant microbial life, could have been introduced to Earth by traveling from distant planets. Today, astrobiologists are actively involved in applied research, currently testing how humans can establish future colonies on other planetary bodies. On the far side of the moon, a Chinese lab is germinating seeds and growing plants. And as of January 15, 2019, cotton seed has sprouted. The unmanned lab also holds fly eggs and yeast, a type of fungi, both of which will need oxygen to survive. The Chinese are testing the photosynthesis and oxygen-generating capabilities of the plants germinated on the moon. At the same time, NASA has a rover on Mars and plans a human outpost on the red planet by the 2030s. NASA scientists are also evaluating the role of the fungi kingdom in space exploration. No doubt there will be room for mushrooms in space. Space travelers can grow mushrooms for nutrient-rich food. For long-term colonies, fungi will serve as essential soil builders for other food crops. Also, as cosmonauts learned on the space station Mir, fungi will travel with the colonists' microbiomes on their skin and in their guts. The fungi kingdom is an inextricable part of human ecosystems. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower with The Secret Life of Fungi, here for you on Eco Report. Senate Bill 610 in the Indiana Legislature would establish civilian oversight of logging proposals for the state's forests and wildlife habitats. The bill is authorized by Indianapolis Republican State Senator John Ruckelshaus and co-authored by 39 District Republican State Senator Eric Bassler. In today's feature report, Bassler tells WFHB he has previously sponsored legislation aimed at preserving 10 to 30 percent of state forests from logging. With much of his district, including areas of state forest, Bassler says Senate Bill 610 is a different approach to his previous conservation bills, which didn't make it out of the state's Natural Resources Commission. But that's what I was trying to do. I said, okay, so, so there's not really a definitive way that we should manage forests. Some people would say to let them all just exist in a natural state. Some would say that they all need to be, you know, cut down and cleared out every once in a while. So... I thought, well, let's, let's do something reasonable and ask for just a set-aside. And last year we asked for a 30% set-aside. And my sense was that we were just going to continue to kind of spin our wheels if we, if we tried to keep asking for the same thing. So Senator Ruckel's house came up with what I think is a kind of an excellent alternative to, to try to move forward with our state forest managed probably in various ways. And so they, they would be able to tell you there was a gentleman that came to Indiana last summer or you know, maybe late summer or early fall. Um, and I don't recall his name offhand. I probably have it on my phone. If I weren't driving down the road, I might be able to find it. But um, And he's from Wisconsin, and he's a, he's a forester, um, and he's also, by chance, 
He happens to be a former, I believe it was a state representative or a state senator from Wisconsin. And and he brought to us a, what I felt was just an excellent idea, and, and that's what Senator Ruckel's House is moving forward with, or I guess I should say uh, Senator Ruckel's House and I are moving forward with. And that is a um, – and I know sometimes we get tired of you know, committees and commissions and meetings and studies and so forth. But what it would do is it would it would uh, get a, a commission together, and and what I think was very important uh, about this commission is it has all the parties involved. It it has the people that think the tree should never be cut down, and it has people uh, that would to say the tree should always be cut down, and so it has all the different parties involved. And what they would be involved with is is setting the course for really, uh, and this may seem kind of long, but when you think about forests and state forests, you know, decades and centuries is, is a relatively small period of time when you're, you're looking at the tree growth and so forth. So it would, it would, the commission would get together and put together a 100-year plan on, on, on the management of our state forest. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that we would be able to get that through the legislative process, that we could get the governor to support it, um, and, and then this group of people uh, again, and maybe in the past that haven't necessarily talked with each other would be in some ways almost forced to sit down to talk to each other and say, okay, what what makes sense for, for, for all Hoosiers on, on how our state forests should be managed? Because you know, I'm of the opinion that, that our state forests are for the use of, of Hoosiers and, and and not any one group of Hoosiers, but, but a wide variety of Hoosiers. So I think that state forests, uh, there should be some portion that should be kind of a a set aside where there would there would be no no cutting down of trees and it would be um, uh, just kind of left to exist in its natural state. Uh, I think the state forests are fine places for for hunters to go hunt, for for hikers to go hike, for for horseback riders to go you know horseback riding, for trail runners to go trail running, and go, you know bird watchers to go bird watching. You know I think I think there's a variety of uses for a state forest and 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 I think we ought to try and take advantage of the state forest and. And really have some some areas where all those different activities can take place. And I always go back to the fact that I think we need to be careful. We human beings, we people, need to be careful when when we think that we know as much or more than uh, than Mother Nature. Um, you know, the, the forest existed for uh, thousands, dare I say, millions of years prior to uh, human beings all of a sudden thinking they have all this wisdom that they probably developed over the last hundred years or so to know how to, to, to manage state forests. So, um, you know, I, I think there's, there's again, room for, for all the parties involved. And, and my hope is that we can come together in this commission discussion and, and uh, come up with a plan that would really, uh, you know, I mean, I'm 55 years old, so it would, it would be a plan that would be in place that not just my children would, would benefit from, but, but grandchildren and great-grandchildren over the next 100 years. And I think that when we look at, at at politics on the national level, it's become very, uh, for lack of a better term, I'll say very balkanized. Uh, my wife and I spent some time in Albania and, 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 the, and the Balkan area, and, and you're probably familiar with that term where, um, you know, the people from different parties or different areas of the political spectrum, uh, it seems on the national level, have gotten in the habit of, of kind of hunkering down and, and just, just spending time with people that, you know, sound like them, themselves and look like themselves and, and believe like themselves. You know, and they, we kind of get these echo chambers. And what, one thing that I think that we've, we've been able to avoid to a large extent uh, when it comes to kind of the state political process is I, I sure don't see that at the state level. And, and when I was on the city council 
in down in Washington. I didn't see it on the at the local level. Um, you know, if you look at the the typical bill that comes through the the, the state senate and the state, and then on the House of Representatives side, um, you know, some significant portion, and, and I don't know exactly what the statistic would be, but you know, when they go start going through the committee hearing process, uh, it, those those bills are are commented on by both Republicans and Democrats, and and both political parties have good input on the the bill writing process. And I wouldn't be surprised if more than ninety percent of the bills that passed the state legislature in, in last year or this, this session, I wouldn't be surprised if they had bipartisan support um, and, and probably also bipartisan opposition, you know. So, so so I think we've done a good job in Indiana to try to not become balkanized like they have at the federal level. When you think about the environment, environmental issues, uh, quite often uh, it's people maybe on the, the left side of the political spectrum that, that kind of lead on those issues. But again, I, I would say, you know, I was on the environmental committee for, for a number of years in the Senate. Um, and again, we heard bills uh, from both Democrats and Republicans. And, 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 and again, I think probably most of the bills that came through there uh, ended up getting kind of tweaked along the way and amended to, to where they ended up getting, you know, bipartisan support. Um, and, and I guess, as, and I do consider myself, a, you know, a, a conservative. And, and, and I think it's important to not lose track of the fact that, you know, conservation and conservative uh, have, have this, the same uh, base term in, in, in the in, in the, uh, the the word and and I think when we look at trying to conserve our our natural resources and and, and obviously our state forests are part of those natural resources. Uh, my goodness, you bet I want those those state forests to be there for my children and grandchildren and your children and grandchildren and many many generations to come. And again, I think that we want to be careful and, and not try to make you know this issue of uh, you know one one political party or another. Um, and and one, that's one thing I was really pleased with. I haven't seen who's on on this bill, uh, you know, because people kind of get added to the bill during the process, and I haven't seen who all's on this bill yet. But anytime we had a bill related to this over the last few years, it had had both uh, Republicans and Democrats on the bill. And um, again, you might want to check the the bill we had last year, and, and um, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that we I, I think we probably ended up with maybe you know a handful of uh, Democrats were on the bill, and probably at least two handfuls of Republicans. I think maybe there might have been 10 or 12 Republicans that would sign up to be co-sponsors uh, or co-authors of, of the, my bills in the past. And so got to, to you know, try to make it a bipartisan issue. I think that's what we'll see here, too. I, my hope is, is that we'll get a fair number of Republicans to sign on to this bill and a fair number of Democrats to sign on to this bill and, and hopefully uh, uh, get the governor to support it and um, to set up the commission to say, okay, what should we do? With our, our, our state force over the next hundred years, let's do an in-depth study of this. Let's get people on all sides of the issue involved and and, and get some good input and, and hopefully good, do some good things for not just not just our Hoosier forest, but uh, therefore uh, also our our, our you know, all, all Hoosiers people that uh, uh, enjoy the forest and even those that don't enjoy the forest. You know as well as I do that you know as well as I do that having trees is good. Uh, Good for the, the, the amount of uh, good clean air and oxygen we have to breathe, you know. So uh, that's good for all Hoosiers, whether they, they go into our forest uh, or not, you know. So so anyway, so that's kind of my take on the, you know, the, the Democrat versus Republican, you know, liberal versus conservative uh, uh, in the state of Indiana. And, and I think we've been able to uh, really kind of try to keep that at bay. Now, admittedly, there's always, a you know, probably a handful of bills that, you know, Republicans line up on one side, and Democrats line up at the other, and that's probably always going to be the case. But we sure do. I, I think, at least since I've been here, a pretty darn good job of of uh, having bills be bipartisan as they go through that legislative process.
Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. Next up is In Nature. This is In Nature. I am Juliana Daly, and today's In Nature segment is about an endangered species known as the ruffed grouse. The ruffed grouse is between 15 to 19 and a half inches in size, about the size of an American crow. It is found in forests from the Appalachian Mountains across Canada to Alaska. It is non-migratory. The dappled grayish or reddish ruffed grouse is hard to see, but its drumming on air display is a fixture of many spring forests. The ruffed grouse has a cocky crest and a tail marked by a broad, dark band near the tip. Displaying males expose a rich black ruff of neck feathers, giving them their name. You can find them foraging on the forest floor for seeds and insects. The drumming sound comes from them beating their wings while standing on a log. The ruffed grouse is listed as a common bird in steep decline by partners in flight. The grouse's immense popularity as a game bird has led to controls on season length, bag limits, and area closures, as well as to extensive efforts to improve habitat through management practices that encourage early successional forest. The habitat has declined where forests have matured to fire control and limits on logging. Pesticide use can affect insect populations that chicks rely on as well. been listening to In Nature. This week in our listening area, you will have an opportunity to learn all about winter gulls at Patoka Lake on Saturday, February 16th at 11.30 a.m. Dress for the weather and bring binoculars and cameras so you can enjoy viewing the gulls at Patoka Lake. For more information, call 812-685-2447. On Saturday, February 16th, the Hoosier Hikers Council will start work on a new trail at Kegels Mill Lake Southwest of Cloverdale, Indiana. The loop trail is approximately 1.3 miles long. For more information about the project, go to HoosierHikersCouncil.org. If you want to volunteer and work on the trail, please RSVP at HoosierHikersCouncil at gmail.com. Indigo Birding Nature Tours 
is offering trips to the Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area near Linton, Indiana, from Saturday, February 16th through Monday, February 18th. You will have the opportunity to view cranes, owls, eagles, waterfowl, and more. For more information, go to indigobirding.com or email david at indigobirding.com. The Wild and Scenic Film Festival will take place on Sunday, February 17th from 6 to 8.30 p.m. at the Buskirk Chumley Theater in Bloomington. Enjoy a collection of eight films celebrating the history and future of Indiana's natural environment. Proceeds from the festival will benefit the Indiana Forest Alliance. There will be a guided hike with a naturalist through Lower Cascades Park on Saturday, February 23rd from 2 to 3 p.m. You will take a mildly challenging hike to the Cascades Waterfall, followed by a discussion about how winter weather shapes our landscapes as you warm up around a campfire at the Sycamore Shelter. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy, Rebecca Mueller, and Wes Martin. The Secret Life of Fungi was produced and edited by... Kaylin Huffman Brower. The music for The Secret Life of Fungi was composed and performed by Janice Jaffe. Script editors were Andrew Brown and Kaylin Huffman Brower. Wes Martin produced and edited our feature. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. This week's In Nature was written by Juliana Daly and Jan Walker edited the segment. Kirsten Payton engineered today's show. Jan Walker is our producer, and executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, in nature, and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Todd Wicks. And this is... Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.